Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak for a second time with Grant Maxwell. We discuss his book, Integration and Difference, Constructing a Mythical Dialectic. Uh, This is part two. Uh, You can go back and listen to part one. I'll include that link in the show notes because that previous conversation will set some of the stage for the second conversation. Now, in this specific conversation, we explore the philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead and his process philosophy. Uh, We discuss Isabel Stengers, the Belgian philosopher and philosopher of science who's really captured Grant's imagination. Uh, He's writing a book about her. Uh, That'll be his next book, which I'm hoping to have him on whenever that comes out to discuss. Uh, She's a fascinating thinker. Uh, One of my favorite parts of the episode is Grant's exploration of what he means by constructivism and how that is a really important concept for thinking about the individual in terms of you know psychological growth and integration, but also some of his reflections on how it relates to the social and the political. And we get into that with some depth. Um, Grant explores the abuse of power and how Absolute power corrupts absolutely both in the political world, but also in spiritual communities, among gurus and Eastern philosophy and different religious traditions. 
Uh, we, we end the discussion by connecting all of our deep philosophical thoughts by reflecting on the nature of happiness and peace. And, and I can't wait for you to listen to that. Uh, Grant truly is a wonderful guy. He's super sweet, kind, brilliant. And I love how he integrates all these various different ideas together into this integrated whole that is not totalitarian, which is really what his book is all about. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Please share it with your friends and your family. And as always, continue the conversation. So you're you're in St. Thomas, yeah. So we're so we're uh, so I guess this is part two, right? <laughs> this is part two. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, yeah. I'm in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, um, and my wife is from here originally. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and her her family moved down here. Her well, her her parents both separately moved down here in the in the mid '60s. Okay. Um, her her dad was a surfer, and her mom uh, is was an artist, or they both still are. Uh, her dad's a surfer musician, and um, and so they met here, and they they stayed here for I don't know how 50, what fifty sixty years. Wow. So yeah, they're still going strong. So I know I'm I'm originally from Puerto Rico, and that's like a U.S. territory. Is 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 that what Saint Tam- Thomas is kind of classified as? Um, yeah, it's a minor. It? Uh, it's a yeah, it's a territory. Yeah, yeah, it's a okay. territory. And we're only we're only like fifty miles to the east of Puerto Rico, so it's like pretty much our closest neighbor, other than the other Virgin Islands. Got you. Yeah, yeah. I feel like my mom has been there and has told me about it that she's really enjoyed it there. But maybe that's some place I have to go sometime. It's great. I, I mean, they're gorgeous beaches. Um, great, you know, great food, great culture, music, all that kind of stuff. It's a awesome. Great spot. Yeah. Well, so man, yeah, this is definitely like part two. I had such a good time, you know, discussing your book, Integration and Difference, last time. I know we only hit on a couple of the philosophers. What what I what I kind of was hoping we could do this time is maybe hone in on Alfred North Whitehead and then Isabel Stangers. Sure. Yeah. And and I kind of wanted to see wh- where you wanted to start with that. I mean, I think it was on Acid Horizon or, or one of the other podcasts that you've done where you said uh, Whitehead became one of your favorite philosophers. Mm-hmm. And and I was just curious why that was. Like, how did you get into him and, and what does he mean to you? Sure. Um, so so I was I was taking in grad school, I was taking a course on um, uh, 
the Jameses. And I think last time I, I actually said I said that Henry James became uh, one of my favorites, but I meant William James, gotcha. the philosopher. Not that I mean uh, Henry James is great too. Um, and and so I mean I was also reading Bergson, Henri Bergson, and Whitehead was really influenced by both James and Bergson. Um, you know, I, I think my first exposure to Whitehead was actually my 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 mom was in grad school for for religion. And so Whitehead has been very, um, very prominent in in theology and in religion, even probably even more than in in philosophy. Though I think I think that's that's changing now. Okay. Um, but she she had a, a few Whitehead books um, that she was reading in her courses. Um, at she was at, at Vanderbilt University in in Nashville. Yeah. And she uh, <laughs> she claims that she didn't really she could never really understand Whitehead, but I but he he was on the show, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so and so I you know I I just I may, might have like looked at the back of the cover and I was intrigued by that. Um, and then when I started getting really into William James and Henri Bergson, um, it sort of just naturally led me to Whitehead. And so I think I think the first book I read by him was Science in the Modern World, uh, which is a great place to start. Um, and um, then, you know, the other great books like The Adventures of Ideas and uh, Modes of Thought and then Process and Reality is his massive magnum opus. Um, so so, yeah, he really became my my I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say my first philosophical, you know, favorite philosopher, my first philosophical love. But because um, that was probably William James. Okay. Um, but but yeah yeah. So Whitehead for a long time was my was my my guy, my favorite philosopher. Sure. Um, really, honestly, until until I started reading um, Deleuze, um, and that was you know, maybe five, six, even seven years ago okay. at this point. And uh, Deleuze was was very influenced by Whitehead, but he doesn't talk about him very much. Mm. Um, and so he, but he, he praises him very highly, like in, in process. And, I mean, in, uh, in difference and repetition, he talks about, um, how, you know, how process and reality is one of the, the greatest, greatest books of the 20th century. And, 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 uh, lecture, he's, he says that, you know, Whitehead is a, uh, where, no, 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 I'm, I'm that's, that, that's William James in, in, in the Fold, which is a book about Leibniz that Deleuze wrote in the '80s, um, he has a chapter on on Whitehead, um, and it's it's actually really interesting to read Deleuze on Whitehead because his his take is it it kind of it's I mean it's of course brilliant because everything that Deleuze wrote is brilliant, but it's kind of like you can tell that he read him in translation somehow. Mm. Like he read him in translation, and then his his interpretation of Whitehead was translated back into English. Um, and so, so it's, it's sort of like, you know, Deleuze talks about how, how uh, mistranslations can be good, that they can, they can be productive and can um, provoke, provoke novel conceptual inter, you know, intersections and collisions that can, that can produce uh, new ways of, of thinking. Oh, I like that. Um, yeah. And so, so, uh, but yeah, that, so that book is on, is on Leibniz and um, Whitehead, Whitehead is, is very Leibnizian. He's, he was a you know, mathematician um, who, who wrote Principia Mathematica with Bertrand Russell, who of course 
was one of the primary founders of analytic philosophy, and Russell was one of one of his uh, Whitehead's dissertation um, advisees. Uh, and so, so yeah, and White, but Whitehead didn't start writing philosophy until his until his fifties, which I was actually just just thinking. Um, because you had mentioned that we were going to be talking about Whitehead. So sure. I was sort of thinking about Whitehead this morning. And uh, I was just thinking, it's, it's, it's what's so interesting about Whitehead, or one of the things that's very interesting about Whitehead, is that his, his approach to philosophy is so fresh. Mm. And I think in large part that has to do with the fact that he didn't, he was already a, a very mature person and a mature thinker by the time he really started writing philosophy in earnest. So it's, it's, so, so his, his early philosophy is very, it's the, the thoughts are very mature, but it's, it's expressed with this sort of fresh excitement that you often don't get in a, you know, a philosopher writing in their, in their fifties, because they've already generally been writing philosophy for 30, 30 years. That's a great like point. That. Um, so thanks. Um, so, so, I mean, I could keep going, but I'll, yeah, I'll well, so, I mean, I have a couple questions. One is, could you speak to why Whitehead became oh. so popular, maybe in like theological circles and then how he's becoming more popular in philosophical circles now, or, or how, I, I think you said, right, there's maybe a transition in, in into kind of modern philosophy, how he's been taken up. Whereas in the past he was maybe more around like the I guess the process theologians is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, like Hartshorn. Hartshorn, is, is yeah, sort of like the, his big follower. Um, I, you know, I think because he just explicitly talks about God in in process and reality, but Whitehead's God is is it's it's not a personal God. It's closer to um, it's closer to Spinoza's God. Honestly, it's, okay, it's, it's, it's sort of this this pantheistic. Um, um sort of sort of neutral force it's it's i mean stengers has this great i mean a long section about whitehead's use of god and and it's 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 you know i th i think what she sort of the the conclusion that she comes to in thinking with whitehead which is to me that's the the best book about whitehead it's it's just a great it's it's like a great secondary work that's also a primary work because okay. it's sort of one of Stenger's two magnum opuses, that and cosmopolitics. I um, mean, it somehow manages to be a book about someone. Uh, mm. So, you know, about a, a single philosopher that, that still manages to be uh, a great work of philosophy in its own right. Um, but she, but she has this long section about, about Whitehead's use of God and, and you know, one thing that it's not the only conclusion that she comes to, but one one thing she says is that I, it was maybe more efficacious um, in his his you know temporal milieu, his temporal context, um, in the the context of his time, and um, that th the whole thrust of his philosophy is very pluralist mm. um, and very resonant with. Um, with, uh, you know, I think with, with polytheism, with, with, with uh, the polytheism of not only expressed by, you know, we were talking a lot about, you know, Jung and, and James Hillman, but yes. also, um, with the, you know, expressed by Deleuze and Guattari. 
um, that that sort of um, conception in which the world is a multiplicity. Um, but there, but but I but I think he's also getting at that that sense of um, the paradoxical univocity of being mm. um, that that there's not and which you know univocity is sort of like a an antidote to to the Cartesian dualism of um, mind and world, and so so there's not there aren't two worlds or or also to to the you know Christian or Platonic conception of two of a transcendent world and an imminent world right um and so you know obviously you know theology and platonism can get very complex and people are pushed <laughs> against those <laughs> but but i think that's that that dualism is kind of baked into both christianity and and platonism this sense mm -hmm. of a um you know in in platonism it's a transcendent world of forms that's act that's more real than the imminent world that we inhabit mm. And so for this conception of university that Deleuze um, sort of drives from largely from Spinoza um, there, and, and I think, and it's very resonant with Whitehead um, there, there's, there's only one world and the world mm -hmm. is an open totality. Um, and, and we, we can, and this is especially, I think Whitehead and Deleuze are both very constructivist and, Stengers explicitly says, I mean, Deleuze is, says that philosophy is constructivism. So he calls his, he basically calls what he's doing constructivism. And Stengers says that Whitehead is constructivist. And this is just the idea that we, we, on, on a, it's not social constructivism. It's not the idea. I was idea about to that, ask, because in, in, yeah. <laughs> in, in the world of psychotherapy, when I hear constructivism, I think of social constructivism. So I was curious if you could just, yeah, elaborate on that. Right. Um, it's it's not the idea that 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 the reality that we perceive is merely a social construct that's politically negotiated, but it's a recognition that 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 is that mode of relation plays a large part in the construction of reality. Mm. So reality isn't a fixed, transcendent grounding. Um, that we can rest on. There's no, there's no ultimate tr fixed truth that if, where if we go deep, you know, deep enough or or high enough, we can reach some some ready-made static forms or or conception of divinity that's um, cognizable mm. for us. That that organisms. Um, including human organisms and consciousness, are have been you know, have have been progressively um, extracted or elicited from the potentialities and constraints of of process. So, so there are real potentialities and constraints in the world, um, and 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 so you know Whitehead calls these eternal objects. Um, you know, Jung and Hillman call them archetypes. Archetypes. Yeah. Um, Deleuze talks about um, dynamisms, uh, multiplicities, uh, ideas. Uh, Deleuze and Guattari talk about cosmic forces and a thousand plateaus. But but they're not they're not sort of like the classical Jungian conception of archetypes, which are closer to the Platonic forms, right? Um, which are these like sort of fixed, static, transcendent essences. They're um, their potentialities for expression. 
and they can be uh, constructed in many different ways. So this is basically just the constructivism is basically the idea that that um, there's no fixed grounding, but there is there are things that are are real. I mean, th there's it's not that we're just projecting onto some unknowable you know, th th there's no reality behind the, the social construction. There is reality, but th that reality is ultimately relational down to its, down to its, you know, most fundamental scale. Sure. Um, and so, and so there, it's like in mathematics where you can, you know, you can, you know, you change one variable and that changes the whole equation. Right. Right. Um, and so, and Stengers talks about this a lot and it's very, it's very white heady and, and Leibnizian of her um, to, it's, it's sort of this resonance between mathematics and metaphysics okay. that we can, we can, that, that there are certain constraints um, from which the world is constructed and we, that those constraints and potentialities can be constructed in many pretty radically different ways, but they're not it's 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 not that anything goes it's okay. not that we can just make anything up and 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 it and it works i mean there are there are physical constraints there are social constraints you know political constraints um you know metaphysical constraints there are all kinds of different constraints and potentialities that we're in constant negotiation with yeah oh man there's there's so much good stuff there you know so so one of the questions that that's coming up for me in terms of whitehead is you know how we were last time talking about monotheism, polytheism. Do, do do you have an idea of where he would land in that kind of debate? You said he didn't really have a an idea of God that was like personal. It, it was more mm -hmm. like uh, Spinoza. How, how would he conceptualize the divine? Would would he, would, yeah, he, would so, he call it God, or or would it, would it be something else? I mean, he does call it God, and it, but but he. So he env he envisions God as as the so the the teleological urge toward concrescence or the allure for feeling. Okay. So it's so so basically Whitehead thinks that the world is composed of prehensions, which are um, relational feelings, but they're mm. not. I mean, it's it, they can eventually become human emotions but he thinks down to down to the smallest scale that everything is 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 composed of felt relationality of of you know electrons prehending um other particles and things of, of that nature um and so and and so the overarching sort of trajectory of his of his philosophy is that is that there's there's a, there's a teleological urge, which is you know the final causation. It's it's being drawn um, drawn toward becoming, um, and and that 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 teleology is toward novelty, toward the mm. creation of new um, integrations. And so so he he thinks that there's a and this he has this concept of the concrescence. Which is that there's a, a progressive coming together of these relational prehensions in increasingly um, complex and ordered um, organisms. But he, he uses the, the word organism. I mean, he called his philosophy the philosophy of, of organism. 
Um, and it's sort of become called process philosophy. But okay. he meant organisms in the sense of not just biological organisms, but organized, um, self-organized entities on every scale. Um, and so he, he thinks that, 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 that these prehensive unities tend to come together in more ordered holes, but there are also negative prehensions. So this okay. is, this is sort of like, you know, this is, it's, so, so there's the, the critique of the, this concept of the beautiful soul that's, that Deleuze critiques in Difference and Repetition. And there's, there's actually a great um, article about this by, by Russell J. Duvernoy mm. in, uh, I think it was in Deleuze and Guattari studies. Um, it's about Deleuze, Whitehead, and the beautiful soul. And this, 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 um, this, it's a figure, this figure of the beautiful soul is um, based on, well, it's, it's based on the work of, of Winkelmann, who's a, a archeologist and um, influenced Nietzsche, but, but he influenced Goethe um, to use this, this figure in um, one of his novels. And one of the sections of that novel is called um, Confessions of a, of a Beautiful Soul, I think. Mm. And so it's, the, it's this figure from the late 18th century of this, of this woman who sort of keeps herself distant from life um, and doesn't engage with the reality of life in order to, and she's very religious and she keeps herself pure um, and sort of, I mean, this is, this is Goethe's presentation of this woman and is actually based on a family friend of the, the Goethe family. Mm. Um, uh, and, and so she, she thinks that everything can be sort of painlessly reconciled in God in this, in this sort of totalizing wholeness and oneness, or at least she, she wouldn't call it totalizing, but, but so this beautiful soul became a figure for this sort of almost Pollyanna ish, this mm. overly optimistic. Um, it, it's sort of, it's sort of similar to, you know, Leibnizian optimism, the idea that, you know, everything is the best in the best of all possible worlds, sure, which sure. is, you know, sort of the one thing that, in, in Leibniz, especially that are one of the primary things that people have tended to push against. Um, um, although Stenger's complicates that as well. Uh, but so this figure of the beautiful soul was taken up by Hegel. And so he made it famous in the phenomenology. I mean, it was already famous, but he used this figure of the beautiful soul in the phenomenology of spirit um, as, as, you know, because Hegel has been accused um, many times and not without justification of of wanting to return op problematic oppositions and conflicts back to uh, totalizing, a to you know, total, pure, perfect um, reconciliation of opposites that is a complete wholeness and oneness in which there's there's no problematic differences. Um, I, you know, I think I think Hegel's more complicated than that, but I think there is some justification. I mean, he says in the Science of Logic that the dialect is dialectic is the one and only true method. Mm. <laughs> so he does have a tendency towards this totalizing, um, uh, this totalizing operation. Um, but so, so then, so then that's one of, that's the, the thing that Deleuze primarily critiques indifference and repetition. Okay. And he uses that critique of Hegel saying that things don't always return to, to perfect wholeness and oneness, that they're, problematic differences that can never be resolved and that subsist and 
and you know it's it's complicated because because I think a lot of people interpret Deleuze as as sort of this they really tend to emphasize the the critical aspect of his work um, um, and 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 emphasize that sort of like deconstructive aspect where where he's just pushing against rec any sort of reconciliation but Deleuze also talks a lot about integration mm. and about dissonant accords and you know har harmonious dissonance and, th and things things like that um, and he talks about it for decades all, all through his work and that's that's basically the the, the subject of integration and difference is, right. is is it's it's going beyond this this the the reconciliation of opposites into you know a perfect perfect complete um, unproblematic wholeness and oneness to show how integration is is always intertwined with differentiation and with mm. dissonance. Mm. And so so to get back to Whitehead, um, Whitehead has this concept of negative prehensions. Okay. And negative prehensions are are basically when two entities are in relation only in the sense that they exclude one another or contradict one another or are in conflict with one another. And so so Duvernoy, who wrote this 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 article about um, Deleuze Whitehead and the Beautiful Soul, he uh, he suggests that that Whitehead can't be considered a beautiful soul because of this concept of, of negative prehensions. And I, I mean I agree with him, but also also I I critique the very totalizing concept of the beautiful soul itself mm. in in the book which i think that's one thing that deleuze does it's sort of like this paradoxical thing that deleuze does where he totalizes by his rejection of totalizing um and and i think he sort of recognized this uh i think he recognized that th this was sort of like a an animating paradox that it was like this sort of this paradoxical problematic you know, um, question within his his work that really motivated his more expansive metaphysical speculations um, and so so this this idea that that um, you know he's very Nietzsche, Nietzschean and Nietzsche was sort of railed against any any sort of any sort of sense of of um reconciliation although that's that's not really that's not totally true because you know he said like in his first book in the birth of tragedy um he he and when he wrote, he wrote that in his 20s which i you know i think is a great great book he 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 envisions a reconciliation of the Dionys dionysian and apollonian um, forces, right? And this is, uh, and and inter interrupts me if, uh, if if I'm just going on and on. No, here. no, no. Well, so um, you know, may, may, maybe to bring a couple threads together, uh, a question that that's coming up is in light of what you were just talking about, and then kind of going back a little bit to your thoughts on like um, a type of constructivism. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm always thinking about some of these ideas through the lens of you know psychotherapy and working with individuals, the human subject. What does a constructivist approach say to the person who's trying to, you know, figure out who they are? 
how would uh, how would you how would you imagine some of these philosophers would encourage someone to think about like personal identity? Right. Um, so so Deleuze has this concept of the cogito for a dissolved self. Mm. Um, and so, of course, the cogito is I think, therefore I am. It's, it's from Descartes, the Cartesian split between thought and world. And there's this there's this just fundamental incommensurability between these two substances. Um, and what, you know, and, and, you know, Zizek actually says, uh, that, that this, this sense of so Slavoj Zizek, the Sl- Slovenian philosopher, yeah, um, who's, you know, Hegelian, Lacanian, I know, you know, of course you're, you're aware of him. Um, he, he says that Deleuze and Guattari, um, explicitly, derive this 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 sense of multiplicity from Jung and I mean I, I think that's I think that's that's largely true I mean they have a lot of other influences as well sure but um, so it's it's the idea that that we that the modern construction of the self is of this this totalizing egoic consciousness that represses um, any dissenting voices in the unconscious—that it's this—it's this this rational voice that must that must master all of the unconscious drives, and this is very Freudian as well. Um, and and so, not only Jung, but uh, you know other of Freud's followers, including you know variously Frenchy and and Reich and Adler, they all sort of pushed against this in various in various ways. But um, Deleuze and Guattari. Um, you know, Andalus, both you know, with and without Guattari, really pushed against this idea of um, of this this egoic self um, in a way that's very similar similar to Jung and Hellman. Um, and so, so it's it's this sense of why do we why do we do things that we don't want to do yeah why why do we have addiction why do we um why do we make bad choices why do we uh you know eat too much not get enough sleep uh do you know lie and cheat and and you know why are we why are we passive aggressive and then regret it why uh so and and it's and so so I think the answer that that these philosophers would give and psychologists um, is that I mean what what Freud would say is that we have to master these impulses. But I think what what Jung and the lineage I think largely derived from Jung, including Deleuze and Guattari, um, is that what they would say is that is that you can't ultimately master the person's of the unconscious that we are that we are composed of a multiplicity of persons mm. that there's no one true self um just as there's no there's no one true god that that's been an instrumental i mean these are all narratives is is that are that are constructed from a reality a process and reality that always exceeds any one exclusive construction yeah so 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 the the construction of um, you know what you can call egoic monotheism is one valid construction, 
Um, but then the problem is when it becomes exclusivist mm. and starts repressing um, po- when monotheism represses polytheism or when, when e- you know, egoic consciousness represses the other persons of the unconscious, that, that becomes unhealthy because then those, and destructive because those, those other potencies, those powers, those dynamisms, those archetypal persons of the unconscious um, which are, you know, Deleuze, Jung, Hillman, they all correlate these powers, these, these, these potencies, Schelling as well, I think largely derived from Schelling, and Nietzsche, of course, they all, they all correlate these potencies with the gods of polytheism. And so that, these are all imaginal constructions that are real, but they don't, none, none of these imaginal constructions contain the whole truth because there's no fixed static truth but they're all real mm. truths because because they're elicited from real fundamental relationality so yes. it's 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 this constructivism is this position between mere social construction in which there's no there's no fundamental reality and so we can just make everything up right. everything um and this and this conception that there's this transcendent fixed static grounding um it's it's this idea of the transcendental which is this this it you know i think of it as a as a horizon where these potencies reside and we we are always being lured by these potencies toward our becoming Um, and the horizon recedes as we approach it so so a- any words that we can come up with to express these potencies are are particular constructions and this is what whitehead is is so great about one of the things he's so great about is that he says that our particular spatio temporal construction is very provincial. I mean, it's, it seems, you know, the historical time of human experience in three dimensions, <laughs> you know, four, four dimensions of time and space can seem, you know, very, uh, very fundamental and given, mm. um, and that that's the fundamental reality. But what Whitehead understands, you know, as a mathematician, he understood physics very deeply. Um, he understands that 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 particular construction is is rather provincial. It's just one construction of reality among others. And there, you know, for instance, you, you could envisage, envisage a, a, an organism who, who only lives in a, in a two-dimensional world instead of a three-dimensional world. Um, and, I, and so, um, you know, there, there's a great, you know, 19th century novel called, I think it's called Flatland, Mm. Um, that that sort of explores this possibility. Sure. Um, so, 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 so Grant, this, can can I ask you this yeah. real quick? I'm starting to interrupt you. Uh, I mean, no, I, no, not at all. I, I I just I'm I'm resonating so much, and I see the whole constructivist thing that you're describing having so much potential, and like let's say working with individuals as they're trying to figure out who they are and and really who they want to be, and I, I love all of that. I'm, I'm curious if you could speak to the potential like political implications or social implications as you mm-hmm. see them, g- given kind of, you know, Whitehead and, and just the, the project, the, the trajectory of your book. Like, like where, where do you see it going? How, how could what you were talking about 
impact, you know, how we relate to each other today? Do, do you see right. some implications? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so it's so I think in when you go through this process that we that we're so interested in the the, the sort of Jungian, um, Helmanian, but also Deleuze Guattarian process of dissolving the ego yes. to become more conscious of the various persons that, from which the psyche is composed. What you're doing is you're basically overthrowing a t- totalitarian mm. dictator who, you know, represses his his constituency <laughs> uh, or his people, um, the, 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 the persons of the, uh, of his milieu. And, um, and so what we're, what we have to do is we have to resituate the ego as a first among equals mm. as, as in a sort of more democratic multiplicity of, of relationality. And so, so I, <laughs> I think everyone who's who's gone through any kind of, you know, sort of shamanic crisis or you know experimented with with um, psychedelics or you know j- just had some sort of spon- spontaneous um, crisis or or engaged in 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 the, you know sort of therapeutic practices or I, I would even say uh, done some maybe not enough serious but just done some dream work exactly yeah you know uh, yeah. really confronting the unconscious at that level yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's, you, you go through a crisis where you, you start to wonder, I mean, it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's easier to have this sort of unified central egoic dictator for consciousness because, and I think most people are still inhabiting because that's the mode of consciousness characteristic of modernity. Yes. And it's, it's very resonant with the rise of totalitarianism. Um, it's this, it's, it's, it, it, in some ways it's easier to just have someone at the top telling everyone what to do and just to have this, this one mode of thought that dominates, but, but it, it just, it never works. Mm. It, 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 it always falls apart. It always goes, it always becomes very negative and destructive. It doesn't matter what, what ideology it's based on, whether it's, whether it's fascism or communism or even or capitalism um it's or or honestly whether it's um spirit uh, sort of you know um eastern spirituality or new age spirituality i mean you you see this with the dalai dalai lama this thing that just happened with him and this 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 young boy um which can you is, speak is to that? I I, I, uh, yeah. I I barely saw something about it last <laughs> night before I went to bed. So I was just yeah. thinking I, I need to kind of read up on that. What what happened and how do you understand that in light of what you said? So so there's a video of the Dalai Lama talking to a young boy. Um, and he, he asks the boy to suck on his tongue and he's kissing him on the lips. And it's just very clearly seems to be pedophilia. Mm. And it's, um, you know, and it's... And it just confirms, you know, it's like I always thought uh, the Dalai Lama always seemed like he was one of the, the one of the few good religious leaders. Right, right. And, it, and it's and it's like, but I I just I think the problem is that when anyone is given, it's absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I, yeah, and I don't that think, maxim I think is true. When, <laughs> yeah, I think that anyone who 
you know, and he he didn't. I don't think he asked for this this power. He was chosen as a mm. child to become this absolute leader of of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and it there's there's no way that one can remain sane and ethical by being an absolute leader of any sort of community. Mm. And so that I think that's why um, spiritual leaders, priests, uh, um, you know. Uh, uh, gurus, they they all almost always abuse their power, yeah. and it's. I think it's this. Honestly, I think it's the same thing with with bosses and employees. I think even when even when a boss is is a, a very ethical person, a, a very self aware, it's it's almost impossible to not abuse your power because mm. it's because it's just it's that kind of power over other adults, I think is inherently destructive. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I mentioned, I mentioned this uh, quote by Deleuze um, that power is a sad joy, mm. right? It's, 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 and the people, you know, he says the people who revel in it, they, you know, the, the people who have power still seem to revel in it, but it's a sad joy. It's, it's, a, it's resentment. It's Nietzschean resentment. It's, um, it, it's it's not it's not it's not a real it's not a real joy. Um, it doesn't it's not a life affirming creative type of joy. Gotcha. Um, it's, a, it's a negative joy. Um, and so uh, I forgot where we were. What we were <laughs> when we started. With this. Oh, this is so good. You you, you were just kind of <laughs> riffing on how some of the constructivist stuff you were talking about could apply to kind of the political or social realm. And you know you you offered some great insights. I'm. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, would this be a good time to kind of transition into Stangers and and, sure. and and how you got into her work and what she means to you? And yeah, I, I know that you're, I think, working on a book about her, yeah. her, her philosophy. So I'd be curious to hear about all of that. Sure. Great. Um, so so how did I get into her? That's a good question. <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, I think actually the first time I encountered her was at a, a Whitehead conference. Okay. Um and this was, I don't know, probably over 10 years ago, um, maybe even, yeah, maybe like 12 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and she, and someone was giving a talk on, on her work and it, and it just sounded really fascinating. Uh, she mm. wrote, she wrote the great, you know, the great work on, on Whitehead, Thinking with Whitehead. And then she actually just came out with a new book. Um, I saw that on Twitter. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> Making sense in common, which is also about Whitehead, which I haven't had a chance to read yet because I'm, 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 I'm actually working on working on the last book other than that that I haven't read by her, which is a, it's like probably you know I I, I doubt very many people have read it, but it's a it's a history of chemistry that she wrote with uh, another French philosopher, or oh, wow. she's Belgian, but with a French philosopher of science, um, so it's it's really interesting. Um, but she, yeah, so she. I read her book on Whitehead because I was just, I was really into Whitehead and I had just heard great things about the book. And honestly, I was, I was, you know, thinking a lot about, about the fact that I did not have a favorite woman philosopher, mm. that all of my favorite philosophers were men. Mm. And I thought that was a problem. <laughs> and so I really was actively looking for uh, a woman philosopher to get into. And so I read it, you know, I, I read some 
Donna Haraway, who's great, some Catherine Malibu, um, various others. But I, when I when I started reading Stengers, it just really resonated with me. Um, honestly, her writing is it's she's okay. So so her biggest influences are Whitehead and Deleuze. Okay. She's also you know very influenced by Guattari and by Leibniz, William James, Bergson. Um, um, she, she co-wrote a great book on on um, psychoanalysis, critiquing critiquing uh, Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis. Um, but so she's she's wonderful. She's a, she's a Belgian philosopher who's I think she was born in 1949 or 50. Um, so she's still alive, and I hope to I hope to to engage with her at some point. I'm thinking I might you know when the book is done I might write her and see if she wants to take a look at it. Oh, that'd be uh, that awesome. Would be a, incredible to get her, her take on it um but she she's so you know she her thought is where where Deleuze's thought is sort of sharp and transgressive even though it's extremely obscure and difficult he mm. just has these sort of sort of electric transgressive moments a lot of a lot of them that sort of emerge out of this you're in this confusion and then all of a sudden it's you're electrified um and then, and then you go back and read the same text again, and it, things become clearer. <laughs> uh, but, but with Stangers, it's more, it's more slow and subtle, and mm. it, it's sort of like her syntax is strange. It's almost alien. It's almost. I mean, she in her early career, she was talking almost exclusively about science, about the okay. philosophy of science, and her first book was written with the Nobel laureate. Um, physical chemist Ilya Prigozhin, mm. who um, his work is on dissipative structures, its complexity, and um, non-equilibrium processes. And so he got, you know, he ended he had gotten the the Nobel Prize for this work. And and sh they, she was working um, in his in his in his his laboratory actually wow. um, as a chemist. And then she decided, I think, to go back and get her PhD in philosophy and became a philosopher. And then they collaborated on um, one book, which is called, um, in, in French, it was, um, it was uh, La Nouvelle Alliance, the, you know, translated as the New Alliance. Mm. But then it, um, the book is actually Order Out of Chaos. It was translated as Order Out of Chaos. And she was only, I think, in her early 30s. Or maybe even her late twenties when they wrote this book together, and he was in his early sixties. Wow! And so, I, I think I think the science is profound. It's a generally constructivist mm. mode of thought, but I think it has a tendency to be a little bit philosophically naive, and I'm. Um, in the sense of this sort of return to, the, they called it the new alliance because it was supposed to be an alliance, sort of this reconciliation of science and the humanities. Um, and she would push against this later. Okay. And and Latour actually, Bruno Latour, who Stangers and Latour, um, they're sort of like a, a pair. They're almost like Deleuze and Guattari, except they never actually collaborated. Oh, okay. um, but they they really admired one another, and they constantly referred to one another and um, influenced one another. Uh, um, and so, so 
he, in the, I think in the foreword to her Power and Invention, which is a collection of her essays from the 80s and 90s, um, said that she spent the rest of her career trying to escape the, 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 I think he says the mass of lunatics attracted to this new alliance that she <laughs> constructed with Prigozhin. <laughs> um, and so, and so it's, you know, it, that really established her, but it also, it was also sort of like this, this albatross around her neck. And one thing that's really mm. interesting is that, um, so the second, the second book that they, they wrote, they wrote two books together. Um, and the second book, was translated as the end of certainty, mm. um, and so so they co-wrote this book in French. Um, in the I think it was in the early nineties, but then for the translation it was It was pretty you know significantly revised, and she declined to be to be named as a co-author. Mm. Uh, so Prigozhin, so it's 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 Ilya Prigozhin in. I think in collaboration with Isabel Stankers. And he's, he actually says in the foreword to the translation, Prigozhin does, that she, she, he sounds kind of like a, like upset about it or confused about why she, she would decline to be included as a, as a co-author and sort of reading between the lines. I think it's because she had moved away from this idea of, of a return to perfect wholeness and oneness, mm. this reconciliation of opposites, um, that, you know, she might've even been, she, it's not, it's, it's, it's unclear whether she agreed with, with him about this return to reconciliation um, or whether she disagreed with him, but just deferred to him because she was this, I think about 30 year old, philosopher right. working with this year old Nobel laureate. So she, you know, there's you can you can still see her influence in that first book be, because of her style. I mean that's definitely the most um, popular. I mean it's the most widely read book she ever was a part of. I mean she's she she co-wrote a lot of other books, okay. but this is it's in the most popular style, and it's it's with this this Nobel laureate. Um, so so it, and then I I think a lot of her work after that is an attempt to you know not completely, but it an attempt to complicate and deepen this, this sense of this return to perfect wholeness and oneness. But the, you know, so the, the, the my book I think is going to be called the philosophy is, is the philosophy of Isabel Stengers. And the subtitle I think is going to be um, constructing peace. Oh. And so, so the two, that's like the two primary elements of her work. I mean, and she talks about a lot of different subjects, um, you know, uh, from physics to chemistry and psychoanalysis. And then she, later she gets really into animism mm. and witchcraft and critiques of capitalism and, um, you know, uh, genetically modified organisms and, and politics, you know, she's very into politics and protest um, and resistance. Um, but but I think this this subtitle constructing piece really captures um, the, the constructivism. Okay. I mean, to me, more than anyone else, I think Stengers is the philosopher of constructivism, and you know, Whitehead and Deleuze are her two primary primary influences, and I think they're both constructivists. Going back to 
William James is, I think, you know, pragmatism is essentially constructivist. Right. She calls her philosophy um, constructivist, pragmatist, and speculative. And mm. she refers to Whiteheadian philosophy as a speculative empiricism. Um, so that's sort of her description of her philosophy. Um, uh, but so the peace aspect. Yeah, of, I was hoping you'd get to that. <laughs> <laughs> subtitle. <laughs> Is that she has this? Um, she talks about this a lot in, in a lot of her work, and it's it's very resonant with Whitehead and Deleuze. But she has this one essay in a book by, that's edited by Catherine Keller. Oh um, yeah, and a co-author. Yeah, she, she, great, she's you know, the process kind of theologian philosopher. Theologian. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, she, and she. So it's it's process and difference. So it's it's looking at sort of the the intersection of Whiteheadian thought and sort of the thinkers of difference. Okay. So, so really Derrida and Deleuze. Okay. And so, and so she has this great essay in that volume that's called uh, beyond conversation. Mm. I think it's the beyond conversation, the risks of peace. And, um, to me, that would be a great place to start with her work okay. um, because it's all about this idea of, um, is peace possible? Is, is reconciliation possible? Is integration possible? We have problematic differences um, and conflicts that animate our life. I mean, it's, it, that animates so many of our, of our conversations between left and right, between conscious and unconscious, between rationality and irrationality, between you know men and women, between gay and straight. Between, Would you say even uh, science and religion? Science and religion, uh, you know, all of the great binary conflicts of modernity um, that an that animate our our that animate our dialogues and our dialectics. Mm. Um, and so, so I mean, this is like this is really the fundamental question of of my book. It's sort of the, the starting point of of integration and difference is um, what do all these philosophers and psychologists say about what what do we do about these problematic um, differences, um, these you know these affective differences? Why do people feel fu so fundamentally different about about the same issue? Mm. Uh, and and so, and so, and so much of twentieth century and and even um, sort of nineteenth century philosophy is is in response to the, the Hegelian perfect return to wholeness and oneness and and you know a lot of a lot of um, like there's there's the this this great book uh, by Roderick Maine um, about that's called. Um, Deleuze, Jung, and the Problematic Whole. Um, Roderick Maine and, and his his associates. They came out, I think, just like a year ago, mm. a year or two ago. Um, that's about it's it's about this issue of you know Jung, Deleuze, and what they both say and how their thought evolved in relation to this idea of what do we do about um, conflicts and oppositions, and can we construct a piece and so stangers is just really great on this on this mm. subject i think she's because she's really influenced by by 
all of these thinkers, except for Jung, I mean, maybe she's influenced by Jung, although she doesn't really talk about him. And I, and I have thoughts on why that might be. <laughs> uh, because she also doesn't really talk about polytheism very much, although mm. she, every once in a while, until late, later in her career. And so to me, Jung and polytheism and Hillman and polytheism are very intertwined. Sure. Um, and, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche was very interested in polytheism as well. And, and Deleuze, actually, although that's not widely recognized but if you mm. actually look at his work he talks about the gods all the time very yeah. various gods i mean he just he's kind of like and it's not just in the 60s i mean i think there's this idea that 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 once he started working with gutari in the 70s he left all of that sort of jungian inflected work behind but it's not true <laughs> i mean still in, in the 80s he's still you know talking about talking about various um you know, uh, Greek divinities, mm. Hellenic polytheism, and he's he's still talking about how much he admires Jung. Um, so, um, but yeah, dude, that's so good. Oh, it's okay. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to remember the name. The so the the last chapter of your book is on Stengers. Is it on the question of integration? Yeah, the question of integration. The question of integration. Um, is, yeah, <clears throat> it's it. Coming up with those chapter titles was really fun because they're all they're all quotes, uh, oh, okay. more or less, from from the the theorist under consideration. Nice. So I think I think that's a quote from Cosmopolitics. Okay. And she's she's specifically talking about um, the calculus and the resonance of the cal of calculus and you know integral and differential calculus, the processes of mathematical differentiation and integration, the resonance of mathematics with metaphysics. Sure. And this is something that, um, you know, goes back to Leibniz, who, you know, co-invented calculus, the calculus with Newton um, back in the 18th century or 17th century. Um, and and so for for Leibniz, the, the calculus is as much mathematical as metaphysical. It's a it's a method for um, the summation of series, but it's a it's 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 a method for for integrating the discontinuous and the continuous. We can go we can go pretty deeply into this, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but you know so Ber Bergson, um, Whitehead, well. Whitehead's complicated, but oh, Hegel, Bergson, um, Deleuze, um, and and Stangers are all all affirm a resonance um, of the of calc of the of metaphysical and mathematical integration and differentiation. Um, so it, it gets it gets a little complicated with Whitehead, but I, I have I have thoughts on that as well. <laughs> Got you. Well, you know, so so one of the things I was hoping you could speak to is just elaborate. This is one of the my the, my favorite parts of your book was near the end where you get into the image from Stangers about the dancers. Yeah, ho yeah. Hold, holding hands like in a circle. Mm -hmm. Could 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 you speak to that? Like like what she's trying to get at and and how you understand it? You know, connected to the the scope of your book. Sure. Yeah, um, that's an image from William James. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, and 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 so she she really riffs on that and elaborates on it, and 
And she, basically the image is that reality isn't this, there's no fixed central proposition, like a tentpole um, around which the entire edifice depends. But that's, that's a construction characteristic of monotheism, exclusivist monotheism, capitalism, and modernity in general. That there's this, that there's this, and all, you know, that there's this central, transcendent, unifying proposition, mm. um, whether it's 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 God or capital or the ego, um, around around which everything else, on which everything hangs. And so, if you remove that central proposition, what you have left is relationality, mm. and you have you have. Um, and, and and you know so Stengers talks a lot about um, different um, entities, different beings um, in constant relation. But this isn't just organismic entities. It's 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 conceptual entities. It's um, you know physical entities. It's it's any actor that has its own requirements and obligations. It's, it's a milieu, it's a social milieu, it's, um, it's, a, it's a machinic assemblage, it's, mm. it's any, any concrescent unity, to use Whiteheadian terms, that you, any, any entity that's come together that has some kind of differentiated structure in relation, you know, within its, within its own internal milieu, but also in relation to other actors with other requirements and obligations. Um, and, so, um, and so she constructs this circle of, of dancers as, as it's not just um, individuated human subjects. It's not just egoic human subjects who are in this circle of dancers. They're, they're holding hands and it requires any mode of thought or any um, any milieu is composed of often dissonant, mm. um, dynamic powers, forces, trajectories, lines of flight, um, um, you know, archetypal impulses, drives, um, dynamic assemblages. And that any totality emerges from the relationality of these various actors um, down to the, you know, most fundamental scale that, that it's, it's sort of, it, you know, in a sort of Deleuze sort of riffing on shelling, it's, it's, it's an ungrounding ground. It's a, mm. it's a, so it's a, it's, it's, it's not a fixed ground on which reality rests. There's no, you don't, you don't, if you, it's not, if you dig down far enough, there's this fixed reality that we could cognize through words. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's that, it's that, it's, it's sort of like the, the, you know, I almost think of it as like the, the, the Planck scale um, in mm. physics. It's this sort of roiling, this roiling, seething relationality from which particles extract themselves, um, and so it's a, it's a, it's sort of like a self-extraction of being, um, and 
And so, and so any, any, any milieu is a, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a politically negotiated construction by various um, beings and entities and actors in constantly evolving relation, including our internal milieu mm. of our own consciousness, because, you know, we have one voice telling us to do one thing and another voice telling us to do something else, or, or if it's not a voice that you literally hear, it's a, it's an impulse saying, right. uh, you know, I want to be faithful to my wife. And then another voice saying, I don't want to. You know? right. I mean, I think everyone, everyone struggles with that. Sure. Um, with, with all of these kinds of, the, all of these kinds of, you know, it's, I want to, I want to eat, um, you know, the extra helping of food or have the extra, you know, beer. Yeah. And, and then, and the other voice saying, you shouldn't do that because you don't want to gain weight or you don't want to be hungover tomorrow. Mm. Um, so, so it's we you know and and that's just one that's just one relation it's it's i think we were talking about this last time it's sort of like the the senex and puer it's, yes it's like or well i i'm not sure if that one's that, that <laughs> one might be more like dionysus and senex or something mm. like that uh the 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 force of, of desire for for becoming the unconstrained mm. you know desire um which can be destructive um, that's you know sort of the Dionysian impulse, and then Senex is that you know this structure and control and maturity and moderation and wisdom. So, wow. I, I I mean I guess in terms of like a final question, but I, but I think you kind of already answered is just how would she and then how would you define peace? Maybe it's not possible to do that. Maybe it's something we 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 hope for. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that when? When, when she writes about peace, I'm just curious if there's a definition. But, yeah. but maybe that betrays the kind of pluralistic, constructivist thing you've been talking about. No, yeah, it's a great <laughs> question. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think for, for, for all of these thinkers, and I agree with them, um, I think peace isn't something that can be finally attained. Mm. It's, it's just like happiness isn't you know there's this idea there's this great um kid cuddy song uh i'm 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 on the pursuit of happiness <laughs> absolutely and i think and i and i think he's you know i think he's saying that ironically i'm really into kid cuddy right now he's like my favorite artist at the moment um but but i think it's this idea that that happiness isn't something that can be finally attained mm. that happy because happiness is a feeling and we all experience all of the affects um, in various concentrations at different times. And it's, they're like waves, you know, you can't just be, be riding the perfect wave forever. No, <laughs> it's, you're gonna, I, you're, I, you're I can't. Gonna be, <laughs> no one can, because those waves don't exist. The waves come and there's a great wave and you catch it. And it, or if you don't catch it, it's, it's, you know, you're, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a joyful experience. Mm. It's going to be a negative experience. Um, so, so the affects are constantly cha changing and shifting and we're always having different emotions. And so, you know, I, I think just thinking on a very practical, you know, psychological level, yeah. I think the, the way to think about 
that's it's just a more productive way to think about life <laughs> and how one lives one, lives one's life is not to this is a it's a myth but in the negative sense i mean i'm a right. big fan of myth in the positive sense but in the negative sense it's this sort of destructive construction that one can if if one tries hard enough and is psychologically healthy enough and loves oneself enough and you know all of this sort of like you know sort of um you know positive psychology that sort of represses and any kind of like you know negative affect mm -hmm. that one can eventually attain perfect happiness and i just and i think that's resonant with this sort of um you know perhaps unfair but but the the hegelian dialectic where one can attain perfect wholeness and oneness and i don't think you know that's jung i think is often accused of that this return right. to perfect wholeness and i i don't think that's actually really what he was saying i mean i think he sort of slipped into that sometimes but uh, you know as we were talking about last time i think he he said a lot of different things and ultimately yeah. he rec he recognized that that the goal shouldn't be happiness the goal has to be purpose itself mm. um and purpose and connection purpose and relationality so it's it, it's to you know life is is fleeting it, it doesn't last for very long uh no it's not and it's and and you know if you know older people no one no one is just happy all the time and and uh, you know and so so I think the goal, you know, we should should really reorient ourselves away from this idea of. I mean, for instance, I think that that you know, sure, you can increase the percentage of happiness, but I think, for instance, people are generally a lot happier when they have have money, which is something we were talking about last time. Yeah, um, and I think so. I think there's a lot of unhappiness just because of, of the our current you know, socio-political system that right. we're living under. No doubt. Um, and I, so, you know, I think, you know, I think that, I think a lot of people are talking about, you know, just anxiety, how anxiety and depression, it's, there's this, there's this very, you know, sort of, you know, I love the boomers, but it's, it's this very sort of, you know, 60s, 70s idea that it's all, that our happiness is all our personal responsibility. And that's mm. an easy thing to say when, when the economy is going well and everyone can easily find a job and, exactly and and no one you know no one really not as many people have to are having to worry about their material well-being um, yeah well so, said thanks so so but I, I think what it comes down to is is you know finding purpose and and connection with others I mean mm. I think that's really true I think having you know one friend is infinitely you know it's well infinitely but it's it's makes one feel just feel much better than having no friends that one friend oh, yeah. it makes all the difference sure sure man wow okay well grant i i just I, I feel blessed i feel so full with all your amazing insights and ideas i love the book i i want everyone to go out and you know buy it and read it it's it's amazing and yeah, I, I hope this isn't the last time that we connect because e even if we don't meet in person, I, I want to consider you a, a digital friend. <laughs> Definitely. I, 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 I benefit from our conversations for real. Thanks, Kike. I, I really enjoyed 
talking with you and thanks for letting me just just go on and on about, about this stuff because it you know it's 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 i it's a pleasure to talk to someone who's you know read a lot of the same books and is just thinking about all of these same things so thank you so much for for having me and for you know for just asking great questions and being a you know being in resonance. It's, it's been wonderful. Awesome. Well, I, I really look forward to the new book and then maybe I can have you back on at that point. We can discuss it because that would be great. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kike. Okay. Bye. Bye. Recording stopped. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.